morning again, Christian Fellowship Church. Let us uh, prepare our hearts to, I would say, engage God's Word, but really to be engaged by God's Word, as God is going to minister to us through what He says in Scripture. Amen? I invite you to pray with me as we ask the Lord to get us ready for that. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that if our hearts are not ready to receive what you have for us, Lord, that you would make it so. Give us hearts to understand, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Encourage us this morning and prepare us for the lives we are to live after this moment now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Each year, Christianity Today releases a list of the top 50 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus. The newest one on Christianity Today's website, the 50 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus, begins with a couple of examples. They say Sub-Saharan Africa, the epicenter of global Christianity, is now also the epicenter of violence against Christians as Islamist extremism has spread well beyond Nigeria. And North Korea is back at number one. According to the 2023 World Watch List, the latest annual accounting from Open Doors of the top 50 countries where it is most dangerous and difficult to be a Christian. They cite that more than 124,000 Christians uh, were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith in the last year, and almost 15,000 became refugees. Ups the ante by saying that more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. I read these to you, first of all, because I want to make sure that we don't just perpetually live in this bubble where our greatest concern is whether we're wearing clothes that are in trend, or if you can afford the third car, or if your retirement plan is getting messed with. Christians are dying. This is not new. This has globally been true since the beginning of the church. I think it is when we are most comfortable, when we are most ignorant of what's going on with our own brothers and sisters around the world that is most dangerous for us. Because we might be tempted to think that America is God's best thing to the world in the history of the world. And there are many great things about America, but when we confuse America as a nation with Christ's church as his people, we won't be ready for what's coming. Let's just, let's just shoot straight. Governments don't care what you think. Governments don't even try to persuade you. They just take. Do you remember when Israel first asked for a king? 
Everybody else has a king. I want you to give us a king. And God was like, okay, so you're rejecting me because you want, not because they wanted a king, they wanted a king like the other nations. What did God tell them in that moment? You want a king like the other nations, you're going to get a king like the other nations. If you go back and read that passage, you'll see the repetition of one word, take. He's going to take everything from you. He's going to take your stuff. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your cattle. He's going to take your property. The government will not try to persuade you about what is good for the environment. They're just going to come and take your gas stove. They take. Now, how long will it be before they will just not be tolerant anymore of churches that claim that the life inside the mother's womb is an actual baby? How long before they no longer tolerate our church's position on marriage or gender or sexuality. The backwardness of the world we live in should be scary enough to go, Revelation is not about the future. We are in it. The dragon is alive and well, and he wants to devour the people of Christ. That's why this letter is especially important in Revelation chapter 2. We're in a series on the book of Revelation. If you move to that last book of the Bible. We're taking these seven letters to seven churches, one at a time, and we're in the second letter. Last week we saw Christ's words to the church in Ephesus. This week we see Christ's words to the church in Smyrna, the church in Smyrna. And as we approach this book, we are wrestling with the question, if we can endure to the end as a church as a people of God as a community of Christ will we endure to the end even unto death if we found out that next Sunday every single person who shows up to worship Christ is going to jail how many of us show up I'm not looking for a show of hands because even if we did a show of hands a bunch of fake hands are going to go up or self-deceived I know my hand will go up, and then I'm going to go home and like, would I, though? Don't see my kids. Don't see my wife. I just get hauled off if I show up next week. Are we ready for that? Christ gives the church of Smyrna what they need to be ready for something like that. And just like with every letter to every one of these churches, he begins by reminding them of John's vision at the end of chapter 1. Each letter starts with, not here's the stuff you need to do, here's the stuff I don't like, here's who I am. So the starting point to answer that question, if we as a church are ready for even that level of persecution, are we ready for it? The first question we have to ask, is Christ still our center? Is Christ still Lord? Is he over us, walking among us, shepherding us? Is our focus Jesus Christ or are we stumbling ourselves, stumbling all over ourselves, trying to be relevant to a world that doesn't want Christ? He reminds them right there in the first verse, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus Christ 
walks among the lampstands. We've talked about this several times already, so I won't unpack all of that again, but he's caring for them, watching them. He's in the center of the churches that are the lampstands. They're the light in this dark world. And Jesus Christ is saying, I'm not kind of a side thing. I'm not a sidekick. I'm not a superhero that kind of swoops in once in a while to rescue out of danger, and then I'm irrelevant the rest of the time. I am the beginning. I'm the end. I'm the first. I'm the last. What about the middle? I'm all that. Jesus Christ is everything. He is He is the first and the last. That is speaking to his sovereignty. That is speaking to him being first place and last place and every place in between. He doesn't have any competition. He doesn't tolerate any competition. And then he follows that up with this defeat of death. Because he's the first and the last, death can't hold him. Death can't contain him. And in his ministry, by being born in this world as a human as a man living innocently, dying the death that we should have died, and then came to life, that secures a specific kind of authority over his churches. That no matter how this world threatens the church, financial loss, arrest, jail, separation from loved ones, how do they ratchet it up from there? Torture, even death. And Christ is just skipping right to that last one. Even death, I'm over it because I'm life. Focus on me. Don't focus on the dangers. I'm the thing that's supposed to be the center. I'm in charge. I walk among the lampstands. I hold them in my hands. And then he realizes that some churches, when churches are in trouble, you know, it might not feel like Christ is in charge. It may not feel like Christ is watching or seeing. It just feels like Christ departed and just left us in this world. And he goes, no, I, I see everything. And I see the good things too. And I see the dangers that you're surrounded by. I, I see it. I watch. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander or the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows three things. I mean, he knows everything, but there's three things that he points out with regard to what he knows about the church in Smyrna and their exact uh, situation. He says that he knows their tribulation. Now, we've talked about this, right? People, when is the tribulation going to happen? Go to Nigeria. In the comfort of our American Christianity, we always think of tribulation as future. Tribulation is now. I know your tribulation, Smyrna. So when did tribulation start? In 1940-something? It started immediately because this is one of the first churches and they're in tribulation. Tell them that's not tribulation, capital T. It's tribulation. It's a trial. It's suffering. It's testing. And Jesus says, I know it. It would be one thing if Jesus were up there like, ah, he just didn't know. Not enough people prayed about it. I didn't hear it. I'm not aware. There's so many churches to keep track of. There's so many lampstands. I don't know. No, he sees it. He says, I know it. That's supposed to be encouraging to Smyrna. Okay, Christ knows it's going on. It's not outside of his purview. And he knows their 
financial situation. Many scholars think the church is already being persecuted. Things are being taken from them. That's probably true. It's also true that geographically they just weren't set up like Ephesus was, that coastal church with all the tourism. Smyrna wasn't really that. And so they were poor, physically speaking. They didn't have a bunch of stuff. But notice how he says, but you're rich. Like in reality, you're wealthy. Don't throw a pity party. Don't be down on yourself because you don't have money in your bank account. You've got treasures in heaven stored up more than other folks. I don't want to go too far off on a side trail, but a repeated theme through Scripture is that the wealthier you get, the more spiritually choked out you get, the less you need God. Well, we see around the world where a church is thriving. We saw in that article how... Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is the epicenter of heat against Christianity. It's also exploding with churches. Well, how does that happen? Because the more the enemy tries to stamp out the church, the more the church grows. And this is one reason why we struggle in this country. In our comfort, we are not zealous. In our wealth, we don't pursue hard. We're not that dependent because we're quite comfortable Smyrna's in a different situation. They're not looking at articles to find out what's going else, elsewhere in the globe to look at persecution. They're experiencing persecution. Jesus comes alongside them, says, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. I understand, understand actually you're rich, though. In my eyes, you're actually wealthy. And I know the people that are making things difficult for you. In this case, interestingly, he doesn't go after Roman soldiers. He doesn't go after uh, Caesar But he goes after the people that are supposed to know better, those who say they're Jews, but they are not because they're a synagogue of Satan. That's not really a new concept in the book of, uh, in Scripture in general. This is not just dropped on us, but we understand that those who claim to be God's people but reject Christ are actually not God's people and are actually Antichrist. That's it. That's, That's It's not saying that Jews are especially evil. It's just saying that in this case, This church is being harassed by Jews that tell them they don't have the Messiah, and because they embrace Christ as the Messiah, they're the worst. How can the Messiah die? He's supposed to be a king. You're cursed if you're on a tree. You worship a cursed Messiah. Remember Peter had that logic? When Jesus tells Peter, hey, I'm going to the cross, he's like, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. You're the Messiah. What does he call him? Get behind me, Satan, because that is satanic. Jesus says, hey, I know what's going on. I know your church. I know your situation. I know your tribulation. I know the exact things you're suffering. I know that you're poor already. And in your poverty, it's difficult, even more difficult to withstand that tribulation. And I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews actually are not Jews. What does he mean? You're the real people of God. Because it's not ethnically based, it's faith-based. Now, you would think that right here, Jesus would follow that up with relief from the suffering. You would think Jesus says, hey, I know what's going on. You've been experiencing tribulation, and I see it, and I know it, and I know you're in poverty, and I understand all of that. But tomorrow, it'll all go away. Just hang in for 24 more hours. Then he actually says the opposite. More is coming. 
Look what he says begin, or in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. About to suffer? We're already in tribulation, Jesus. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Sounds like some of them are going to prison and some of the ones going to prison aren't coming back. Be faithful even if they kill you. Be faithful. Don't say Caesar is Lord. Say I'm Lord. Even if they pull out the sword. Be faithful even unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. This is coming specifically at 10 days of difficulty of being thrown into prison and perhaps even being killed for their faith. Now here's what, here's what I want you to notice. We often think, man, if, if we were being faithful as a church, we wouldn't have to be persecuted. But in this case, their faithfulness is the occasion for the persecution. It is because they're faithful that Jesus is allowing the persecution. So none of this, do I deserve this? It's not about deserving. The more a church pursues Christ, the more heat is going to come on that church. Why do I say that? He says it because he tells them the tribulation that they're going to experience. In verse 10, he tells them, don't fear what you're about to suffer because you are about to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. He's giving them the purpose behind the persecution. The purpose behind the persecution is not to just see how far the world can get. And it's not sort of this um, arbitrary allowance that God is giving the world government. The purpose is testing. Now, testing in Scripture has two sides to it. The devil tests and God tests in the same thing. Do you remember the book of Job? Job, he's wealthy. He's got a huge family. He's got tons of money. He's respected in the town. What Job says, people listen. When Job speaks, people listen. When Job walks in the room, people stand. He's got reverence, respect. And then Job basically tells God, the reason why he worships you is because he has all that stuff. Give him poverty. And then see if he still worships you. Let me test him. Let me test Job's worship. And God is like, all right, go ahead. Right? So Satan can't do it without God's permission. Jesus is in control of the lampstands. If a lampstand is being persecuted, it's because he gave Satan some leash. That's the only reason why. And you notice, this testing doesn't happen with some church that is struggling to even hold Bible studies, okay? This is a healthy church, a thriving church. One of two churches of the seven churches don't get any corrections, and Smyrna is one of them. Smyrna gets an A from Christ. There's no rebuke in this entire letter. I have this against you. Nothing. But they catch all this heat. They get all this persecution. Why? It's precisely because they're faithful. Do you remember the Jordan rules? I might have Carl come up here and explain all the Jordan rules. I wasn't even here when the Jordan rules were being put into play. Jordan was so good, he dominated the Pistons with like 59 points in one game, and Chuck Daly pulls his staff into the room, and he's like, hey, we need special rules for Michael Jordan. 
And I don't remember what the rules were. When he's on the right side, trap him. When he's on the left side, double team him. When he's over here, smack him. I don't know. Have Bill Lambeer punch him in the face. They had all these different rules, specifically for Jordan. Why? Because he was so good. That's why. Special rules for the one that's so good. He gets all the heat, all the attention. See, he's got an entire staff, professional basketball coaches, drawing up plays to handle one dude. The Jordan rules. Why Smyrna? This poor church, nothing like Ephesus, nothing like Laodicea. If it weren't for this one letter, we wouldn't even heard of it. Smyrna? Because in Jesus' view, they're the all-stars. They don't have money, they don't have wealth, they don't have clout, they don't have famous... uh, Well, that's not true. They did have... We'll get to that in a minute. They did have famous people serving them. But this small church that doesn't, by physical outside standards, really have much going for them. And Jesus is actually, you're Job. You're Peter. Because the next moment when Peter was getting a little cocky, he's like, I'm not going to deny you. I'll never deny you. Then what does Jesus tell him? You know, actually, in, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Luke lets us in on this fact. Jesus tells Peter, actually, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. You know, like when you're panning for gold and you're hoping that all the silt falls through and the gold is left in the pan? That's sifting. And he tells Peter, you're going to be sifted just like that to see what you're made of. Is there any gold there? Or in this case, wheat? Separating wheat from the chaff? But he tells Peter, but I'm praying for you. He doesn't tell Peter, just buck up, man. Hang in there. He's going to sift you. Satan's going to sift you because you're leading the disciples. Satan's going to sift you because you're leading the apostles. Satan's going to sift you because of what you just confessed, that I'm the Christ. He wants to see what you're made of, but I'm praying for you. Peter passes, even though, he, yes, he betrays, but then Christ restores him. Why? Because Christ interceded for him, and he's in control of his lampstands. That's why. So Satan tries his best. He tries his Jordan rules. He's in hell going, okay, this church. Can we double team this church? Can we force this church to go left? And Jesus is up there like, go ahead, try it. That's my church. We shouldn't fear persecution. If Christ is the center of our church, persecution is not to be feared. That's why Jesus fronts it by saying, do not fear what you are about to suffer. They're literally supposed to hear this letter read to them in front of everybody. And go, okay, next 10 days we're getting thrown in jail. Some of us may not come back from it. Are we fearful? Nope. How's that possible? That's only possible if Christ is the center of your life and he's the center of the church. If he's a side thing, he'll be a side thing when trouble comes. But if he's the center, he's got you and he's got the church and there's no need for fear, verse 10 even though we'll experience tribulation. We're to be faithful unto death. And then Jesus says, you're faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. Death here is a great villain throughout Scripture. And it's a terrible prospect we all face. We're not supposed to enjoy it. We're not supposed to click our heels and, and hope for it. It is terrible. But Jesus is saying it's actually the path to winning the crown of life. If 
you're faithful, even unto the point of death, I give you the crown of life. Now, the crown of life was their laurel wreath that they'd put on the winner of contests. Basically, uh, a trophy, a championship belt, a ring, a gold medal. It means, to wear that crown means, I won. I didn't lose, I won. I'm the victor. I conquered, I won the contest. Here's the testing. Did I pass the test? Did I win the test? Yeah. Magna cum laude, here you go. Here's the crown. Jesus is promising that to those who endure to the end. Because death isn't the end. Death isn't the final thing. You, you were a victor through death. And so we're not supposed to fear death. Death is a passageway to receiving the championship belt. To be able to say that in Christ we won. Now this, I want to just take a moment here. This fits the great themes of ironic reversals throughout the Bible. Ironic reversals. Something looks like it's the worst thing and that actually ends up being the best thing. It's ironic and the situation is reversed. Over and over again in the Bible. Just real fast ones, just so you can go, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. We could be here all day talking about these. Sarah is barren and old and unable to have kids, and somehow she becomes the mother of an innumerable people. Joseph is sold into slavery, but essentially he becomes ruler of everybody in the land into which he was sold as a slave. That's backwards. But it looks like defeat, it ends up in victory. Joseph is hated and sold because he's a dreamer, but it's exactly his ability to interpret dreams that's his ticket to the top in the end. Jonah boards a ship sailing in the opposite direction. He's supposed to preach over here. He he doesn't want to preach to pagans. Pagans are terrible people. I don't want them to turn. So he jumps on a ship full of pagan sailors to sail in the opposite direction. He gets dumped into the storm to die, and the sailors start glorifying God on the ship. He evangelized them even though he didn't want to. Reversal. It's all over Scripture. And we saw it when Satan uses trials to test saints like Job. When Satan uses trials to test saints like Peter, it only proves God's grace upon them. And then they shine all the brighter. The greatest reversal of all is that Jesus defeats death by dying. He defeats death by entering into it and dying. Jesus rises to power by humbling himself. He rises to power by coming as a lowly servant. He defeats his enemies by surrendering himself to his enemies. What kind of strategy is that? Here's all my enemies. You know how I'm going to defeat them? Surrender myself to them. And now here he strengthens his church by allowing them to be satanically attacked by human persecution. This isn't Jesus abandoning his church. This is Jesus setting them up to wear that crown of victory to conquer. As a church... Are we ready for something like that? For persecution and heat that might feel like defeat, it might feel like it's all over, it might feel like it's not worth it to be a Christian, but actually leaning into that persecution and opposition is a pathway to victory. It's backwards, but everything in Christianity is upside down. Actually, it's the right side up, but this world is upside down. Silly movie. Years ago, 
they try to do a remake, but the original one with Gene Hackman is way better. And the ship, the Poseidon, is upside down. Some of you remember this, others of you that are not as old, I don't know. Don't watch good movies, I don't know what your problem is. But anyway, the ship gets turned over and it's upside down. Most people are heading for the exits. What's the problem with the exits? They're down instead of up. So Gene Hackman and a few people figure out, wait a minute, we need to go down, not up, in order to go up, not down. Making sense yet? That's the Christian life. To lean into victory is to lean into death? It might be. To live out the grace of God might be to have to do that in a prison? It might be. But that's not defeat. That's victory. Over and over and over, we see those reversals. I'll just commend the book to you. This one is uh, by G.K. Beale, B-E-A-L-E, Redemptive Reversals. The whole book is on what we just talked about. All right. Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom. I think it's important for us to embrace that theme because that's right where Smyrna lives. Smyrna lives in this upside-down, backwards, upside-down ship. And the only way out is to look to Jesus, this king who was defeated, this one who's present among the lampstands, but not physically present for us to touch or see. We do it by faith. And that's the power of the gospel in the church. And if we endure even to the end, even unto death, he's not saying you have to experience uh, an execution in order to have the crown of life. It's those who endure no matter what happens, disease, a terminal diagnosis from a doctor, or even in comfortable life. That wealth didn't even choke it out. That you pursued until the end. And Jesus guarantees the crown of life to those who endure no matter what. It's really victory. Jesus promises that. And he goes further into it in the last verse there where he says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's make a clarification here because we see this throughout the churches. I touched on it a little bit, but not in depth at all. What does it mean when Jesus calls the people and says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, does everyone have physical ears? Is he wondering if they have a deaf ministry? No. No. Spiritual hearing. That doesn't take that much work to get there, right? Anybody have ears in here? Let's do a sound test. No, he's talking about, can you actually pick up what I'm putting down? You can read the words and not really be impacted by the words. You can come to church and hear a sermon, and it went, you went home, and the sermon didn't really matter. It's not really the sermon, it's the passage. Insofar as the sermon, explain the passage. I don't care if you remember Jordan rules or silly illustrations, or if you go home and some of you might be like, let's watch Poseidon and miss the text. Like, I'll never use an illustration again, seriously. Do you have ears to hear what's being proclaimed right now? Jesus doesn't mean do you have physical ears. He means do you have spiritual hearing. So then the next question is, does everyone have spiritual hearing? Some people might say, well, free will, yeah, everybody has equal share in hearing. Uh, What I've tried to teach many times 
from this platform is the answer is no one has spiritual hearing unless God grants it. This is why Jesus walked around healing deaf people and blind people. You're like, what about other kinds of ailments? Well, the paralytics was to fulfill the prophecies given in Isaiah, the lame man leaping for joy. It's all channeling Old Testament stuff. Why is he going around healing blind eyes and deaf ears? You can turn there if you want. I want to just take a time out real quick and go to Deuteronomy 29. I told you read Revelation with the Old Testament in your left hand, and that's what we're going to do now. Deuteronomy 29. I don't know how many times I've read Deuteronomy, and I don't think this ever struck me the way it did preparing for this message. The reason why it's called Deuteronomy is because this is sort of the second iteration uh, of the law. Deuteronomy, second law. And Moses is just not real confident they're going to get it this time. Just like he wasn't, you know, they didn't quite get it the first time. And as he gives them the law, it says up in verse 1, these are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses. Now, here's we're, we're, why are we in Deuteronomy 29? What is this deal about hearing? And does everyone have spiritual hearing? He's talking to his spiritual people that are supposed to be his spiritual people, Israel. And he's gathering them to talk about the covenant, these words that they're supposed to hear. The words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. Verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen, there's the eyes, right? You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. You have seen all that the Lord did before you in the land of Egypt and to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw the signs and those great wonders. You've seen all this. We talk about defeating Pharaoh. They were there, right? The splitting of the sea, the pillar of fire, the cloud by day, all of the manna, open up the tent. Oh, there's my food. Quail landing in their lap when they were tired of the bread. They, they see all this stuff, right? Right there in front of them. And then he says in verse 4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Do you remember some of you at CFC Kids downstairs, you're going through Scripture and the kids are like, Oh, Israel again? Failing again? Why does Israel fail through all these books? Fail, 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 fail. The answer's right there. I can't just give you laws. You won't follow them because you can't see them. You can't understand them. Were they stupid? No. Could they understand the Hebrew of the words that Moses was giving them? Yes. Were they blind? They saw the miracles. This is why when people tell you, yeah, I would follow Jesus if he just sent me an angel, if he just gave me a vision, if I just saw Jesus for myself. Man, no, you would not. No, you wouldn't. You would reject him anyway. This is what uh, Jesus was communicating with the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is like, if, 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 if you just send Lazarus back, that resurrection from the dead, all my family would believe. I didn't have that. See, I saw Lazarus, but if I saw a resurrected Lazarus, oh my goodness, then I would have turned. No, you wouldn't, man. 
if Jesus himself comes back from the dead, they won't follow him. What is the difference between people who endure in faithfulness to Christ to the end and people who, at the first sign of discomfort, bounce? The difference is, can you see what God is giving you to see? Can you actually hear what's being said right now in this passage? God has to give you the ability to see it. And when God grants you the ability to see it, you see it, man, and you can't unsee what God gives you to see. You cannot unsee that. And the person that can't unsee it, you put a gun to their head, and they just can't unsee it. And they endure to the end. Christ isn't telling them what you have to do is have more Bible studies. What you have to do is study more Scripture, and if you just study enough Scripture, you'll get it. What you have to do is accumulate more Sunday attendance Right? If you just attend church that 28th time, then you're in this upper tier of being able to make it. None of that stuff. Am I the center with my brass feet and fiery glowing eyes and my wool hair holding the lampstands? Am I the center of the church? Am I the center of your life? And if I am, you will endure because that's my promise and you need not fear. They can't take it from you. They, can't rot. they can come take your guns, your stove, your house. They can't take your faith because I gave you that sight. Jesus Christ is coming to his church, a faithful church, a church that didn't need any correction. They just needed encouragement about what's about to happen. And then you'll notice he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, because this isn't just about Smyrna. This is about every faithful church living in this dark world. To be a lampstand in darkness means you're going to get attention. And Jesus says that they will conquer. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We'll do this quickly, but he, he doesn't mean we need to muster up so much faithfulness and so much courage in our own walk that, you know, I conquered. I did it. I did it with all my works. He doesn't mean that. And probably most sermons from this, you know, just pick a Sunday, Right? We're talking about we're not saved by works, but we, we work because we're saved. And that's a huge difference. It doesn't mean Jesus does all the work so that we can just kind of coast and not be concerned with doing stuff. It doesn't mean that either. What it means is when we're folded into Christ, who is the conqueror, he conquers so that we can also conquer in him. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1, just so you can see how this works. Chapter 1, just Revelation chapter 1, we're back in Revelation, verse 5. He's talking about the, the, the spirit that's before his throne. The seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. You can go back to that sermon for that. Verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. There he is. The one who walks around the, among the lampstands. Isn't just in charge of the lampstands. Everything is his. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. See, we're in sin. Christ forgives us and doesn't just forgive us and then we can just go do whatever we want. Forgives us and makes us a particular citizen of a particular kingdom. We live a certain way because we're forgiven. So that's how we conquer. We conquer in Christ. We don't conquer outside of Christ. None of us can do it. Nor does it mean if I'm in Christ, I don't have to do anything because that's not conquering. Actually, if your last year, your last five years, your last 10 years, your last 20 years, you really, your life doesn't look anything really like Jesus. 
you're just kind of pinning it to a moment where you prayed with somebody or dunked in water in a tank, you might want to revisit what it means to be forgiven and transferred into a different kingdom if it looks like you still live in the other kingdom. But if you are in the kingdom, you don't have to go home and go, man, what can I do in my life so that I can be prepared for persecution? What you need to ask yourself is, am I in Christ? Because if I am, he gives me what I need. What did Jesus tell Peter? Devil's about to sift you, so you better start figuring out your quiet times. I'm praying for you. And because of my effective intercession for you, you're going to make it. We lean on Christ. He is the conqueror. And then we're rescued from the second death. The second death is described in Revelation 20:14. It's a lake of fire, a place of eternal torment. We'll deal with that when we get to it. But we need to be reminded that the victory for the believer is that we will not be harmed by the second death. The first death is a passageway into eternal life with Christ, the new earth reigning with him. We will not be hurt by the second death. And that's, that's the vision. When we understand that death is, a, is sort of a, a curtain, it's horrible and we grieve, right? But it's a curtain that passes you into eternity with the Lord. It's another, it's, that's really where life begins. This was like a testing time. This was a tribulation time. And then you pass through that. It's like graduation. You took all these exams and all these courses and all these grumpy professors, and now it's time to walk across that platform, grab that diploma, in this case, the crown of life, and now begin everything. Right? This temporary life right now is just you know, four terrible college years. Everything else after that, now that's your career. That's the main thing. When you're tempted to compromise now, oftentimes it's because we don't have a vision of the future. We don't have a vision of eternity. And frankly, many of us find the prospect of being in heaven or being with the Lord forever is just kind of boring. That's another reason why I'm glad we're going through the book of Revelation. I'll just tell you that right now. But if you have a better vision of what lies for us beyond the pathway of the first death, that'll strengthen you to be ready for eternity and never experience the second death. Let me just read for you briefly. I messed up earlier and said, well, nobody famous was in this church. Actually, historically speaking, if you've ever heard of uh, Polycarp, Polycarp was a Christian. He, he wrote some things. He was friends with Ignatius, who wrote some letters. Actually, you can Google letters from Ignatius. He's written some of these churches, right? So this is, you know, a little bit after uh, the, the writing of the book of Revelation. And Polycarp was known as the bishop of Smyrna. We can say the pastor or the head elder of the church at Smyrna, historically speaking. And as we think about uh, Polycarp's life, it matches up with what Jesus is promising Smyrna as a church. If I could just find it here, okay. Here's Polycarp, and I'm using here uh, William Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors. I figure, why rewrite it out? He did such a good job with it. I'll kind of read it in my own way, I guess. But he writes that it's possible that Polycarp was the bishop of the church at Smyrna at this time. He was a pupil of John. So if John the Apostle is writing the book of Revelation, uh, tradition tells us Polycarp was one of his disciples, and he's at Smyrna ministering. 
And he was faithful to death. This venerable leader was burned at the stake in the year 155. He had been asked to say Caesar is Lord, but refused. So he was brought to the stadium. The proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul again pressed him, the old man answered, Since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and you pretend to not know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. A little later, the proconsul answered, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will throw you, unless you repent. I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing that you despise the wild beasts. In other words, you, you don't care about the wild beasts. All right, then I'll burn you then, if you will not repent. Famously, Polycarp responded, You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour. And after a little is extinguished. But you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Soon afterwards, the people began to gather wood and kindling, the Jews especially, the whole synagogue of Satan thing. I mean, they're part of this. It's not going after Jews, but historically speaking, this was the issue. And thus Polycarp was burned at the stake. Tradition has it that his body wasn't burning, and so someone took a knife and stabbed him to kill him. This is one of many, many, many stories we can read. I read that one just because of how tied it is to the church at Smyrna. That historically speaking, here's their pastor, and here's how he went out. I labored over this passage, not because I didn't understand the Greek or I don't know how to preach it or what's my introduction going to be. I labored over it because as your pastor, I don't know that I would have the strength to do that. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. Then it hit me. He doesn't say fear not because you're all that. Fear not because I'm in charge of the lampstands. You're not in charge of the lampstand, you idiot. Jesus didn't say that to me, but that's how I feel. <laughs> You're not supposed to be all that, Peter. I'm doing a work. Lean into me. Focus not on the politics and what's coming down the pike. Focus on what you're supposed to be focused on, me. Worship me. Be built up in me. Be nourished by me. Allow me to build you up with the word and prayer. As a community, as a church, continue to gather Continue to lean into one another. When something comes up that's a little ugly, don't ignore it. Address it. Fix it. If it's your own sin, confess it. If it's someone else's sin, try to build that bridge with the person. Let's be about reconciliation and truth and grace and love. And let's not leave the first works of love behind. Let's press into them. And if we're focused on that, we need not fear what comes. We need not fear what's in eternity. That second death. But instead, we praise God and worship him for rescuing us surely and wholly from any condemnation. If the world condemns us, we can take 
joy in the fact that we're uncondemned before the eyes of God. That the world might see a church in poverty, but Jesus sees a church that's actually wealthy. Why? Because he's our center. Let's pray. Father, as we close in this song, we ask that you would build us up. Give us grace. Give us confidence not in our own abilities. Give us confidence in the ability of Jesus Christ to bring his victors home. And so that we get to wear the crown of life and surround the throne of the Lamb, casting those crowns before him because we didn't conquer. Christ conquered through us. As we close in the song, Lord, would you, would you receive our worship in sincerity and in truth? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close in a song. Thank you.